comfortably able, uh, let's remain standing to honor God's word. From Romans 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. There's an old Spanish proverb that says, an ounce of mother is worth a pound of clergy. <laughs> I think that's somewhat appropriate for today. <laughs> and, and, and very, very true. Happy Mother's Day. I want to uh, begin by asking a question. How, how would you prove that someone loves you? What's the proof? What would need to happen to have proof of someone's love? I mean, at the end of the day, how do we really, really know? Let us pray. Oh Lord, uh, may you be our teacher today, the voice of your spirit. Uh, so we humbly ask you to speak to each of our hearts. Amen. We have been in this series of sermons trying to unpack and learn more about what Paul keeps talking about in these chapters, this idea of justification by faith through grace. That's a big religious term. I mean, it's, it's a, whole, a lot of religious language around that, justification, faith, grace. Um, but it's important that we understand it, and that's why Paul spends so much time on it, because as John Calvin said, it's the main hinge on which Christianity turns. I mean, we've, this is the kind of the biggest deal that we got to understand. We really need to know this. And so Paul's been doing this, and then we get to chapter 5, he's going to give us another word to describe it. It's like uh, going around a prism, and he keeps looking at it from different angles. And today he's bringing into the discussion this wonderful word, reconciliation. Reconciliation. Verse 11, but more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Now, this word is, it translates a Greek word, katalasso. And it's not found much in scripture, actually. We don't have a lot of cross-references for this. It's a combination of a preposition kata, which means according to, and the verb alasso, which is the verb to change, according to and to change, to make other than what is, we might say. Katalasso means, literally means to exchange, or we translate that as to reconcile. 
Now, in the middle voice, in the Greek language, it means to reunite or to get back together, as in a marriage after a separation. Now, reconciliation differs from forgiveness. Forgiveness is one way, right? Um, I may forgive you, but that doesn't require anything on your part. It's, it's still the fact that I've forgiven you. It's a one-way thing. But reconciliation involves both parties. And what Paul is saying is that Christ has come to change, exchange, to reunite, to bring back, and it changes the relationship. From the root of this Greek word, we get our English word catalyst. The word catalyst means to introduce a substance to another, and it changes the subject, substance, but it keeps its own form. So Paul's saying that Jesus Christ is the great catalyst. He keeps his form, but when he enters into our hearts, into our world, it changes it. And for the purpose of reuni reuniting us. So how do we really know that this process has happened? How do we really know that God really loves us? I think it's the one thing that we really do deep down want to know. I really do. I think at the end of the day, deep in our hearts and our souls, we, we yearn to have proof of the answer to that question. Does God really, really love me? I remember I was with a woman a couple years ago, and she was going through a really hard time, a really hard season in her life. And we were walking through that, and she was sharing a lot of things. And I asked a number of questions, and finally I asked this question. I said, I need to ask you this. Do you know... I mean, do you, do you really know that God loves you? And in a moment of honesty, she said, no. She said, that's the one thing I don't know. But I do think it's the one thing we all yearn to know. It would be wonderful. Paul is talking about this, and he wants to give us proof of it. It's the one thing we want, most want to know, and Paul says... Love demands that there, are, there is proof. The English poet William Blake wrote that we are put on this earth a little space that we may learn to bear the beams of love. I love that. Why are you here? Why am I here? It's to learn to bear the beams of love, meaning the, God's, the beams of God's love are coming. Whether we like it or not, they're, they're coming to us. My job is to learn how to bear it, handle it, receive it, welcome it. And if we do, it changes us. It changes us because we will begin to live in the reckless confidence that nothing can separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ. This is what the gospel is all about. And it comes to me, warts and all, all my failures, that in Jesus Christ, God accepts me. Paul wants you and I to have proof of this love. Now, I think for any love to be real, two things need to, or kind of, a lot of things need to happen, but two central elemental things need to happen. One, it needs to be spoken, right? I mean, you need to hear from a loved one that they love you. It, the words spoken are, are very, very important. Um, but also, something does need to happen. 
You can say, I love you, I love you, I love you, but if you never show up for dinner, it really doesn't matter much if they told you. We might call this tell and show. In Romans 5, Paul is going to talk about both of these as proof of God's love. And the first is, he says, he talks about the inner experience of the Holy Spirit. We might call this words of affirmation. Some of you read the book, The Five Love Languages, and talks about how we love each other, and there are five ways. One of the ways that we love each other is through words of affirmation. Well, God uses and employs that with us. Verse 5, God's love, Paul says, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. And so there are times when the Holy Spirit comes in a wonderful way and reassures us deep inside of the love of God. <clears throat> Paul says oftentimes this is connected to times of suffering. And there in the midst of our suffering, the Spirit comes and pours into our aching hearts a, a fresh measure of the love of God. Have you ever had that experience? Things were not going well. It was a hard season, but somewhere, somehow, out of some place, a calm came over you, a peace that was hard to understand, a reassurance. Maybe it was the voice of the Spirit telling you it's going to be okay. Maybe someone came into your life alongside you and they became the voice of God and said, it's okay, I'm going to stay with you, I love you, we're going to get through this together. Have you ever had those experiences? I have. I've had the experience where I can't explain it and I can't describe it very well, but there just felt a warmth that came over me, a sense of the Spirit of God, and it was speaking to me. Sometimes that comes in times of quiet prayer. Sometimes it comes during worship. For me personally, in, in my unique who I am, I have to tell you, it comes to me sometimes when I'm, I'm driving to church on Sunday mornings. I, I, I'm, I'm driving and I'm obsessively thinking about the sermon. About what am I going to tell you? How am I going to tell you? What words do you, should I share? And it's happened to me a few times where I just felt this presence come over me that was very reassuring. And, and, uh, and it's wonderful. And I'd love to tell you how to duplicate it. <laughs> I'd love to tell you if you do this, this, and this, and this, it'll happen. It doesn't work that way. But when it does happen, it's a wonderful way of God saying to me and to you, it's okay. I love you. These other things are passing. But my love for you is real. It's the verbal words of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that all of you have read The Lord of the Rings. Of course you have, right? You've all read The Lord of the Rings. And because of that, you know about Sam and Frodo. These are the two hobbits, these main characters in The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien writes about a scene in which Sam is going through a season of suffering, of hard. And he writes, far above the west night sky, there was, it was still dark and dim and pale. And there, peeping among the clouds were above was dark, high up in the mountains. Sam, Sam was lying, he's a hobbit, he's lying on his back and he's scared and he's worried. And he's looking up at the sky. Sam saw a bright star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart and he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. 
For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. And now for a moment his own fate, even his master ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself by Frodo's side and putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. This is the work of the Holy Spirit to give us reminders through hard seasons and difficult times that the shadow that you're experiencing, grief, loneliness, whatever it may be, that shadow is small and passing. Because there is something that is a high beauty, a higher beauty, and that can never be taken away. And when the Spirit speaks these words, we're reminded of God's love. And we need that. All of us need to be told and spoken to and reminded of God's love. But we do need more than that. In any relationship, we also need to see that spoken word put into action. And this is Paul's second proof of God's love. And he says it's an an objective and historical fact. He says this in verse 8. God proves his love. You want proof? Paul says. I know we talk about it. But let me give you proof. He proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross of Christ, says Paul, is the indisputable, undeniable proof of God's love. In verses 6 through 8, Paul explains this by contrasting the highest form of human love. Paul says in, in any human life, you might, someone might die for a good person or a family member. I mean, we can think of times in this world when that's happened. You, you might die for someone really close to you or someone really, really worthy. And if you did, if you gave your life for that, that is the highest form of love. Paul admits that, and we know that. I mean, think about someone giving their life so that you could live. But Paul is taking it further here. He says, in verses 6 or 8, he explains this, but he contrasts contrasts that human love, and he says, now let's talk about God's love. Let's talk about it. For whom was God willing to die? Look at the words he uses. Weak people, sinners, enemies, Ungodly. This is verses 6 through 8. He's not dying for good family members or righteous people or heroes. He gives his life for people who've turned their back on him. Who said, I don't want anything to do with you. Who says, I don't love you, even. He dies for them. Isn't that amazing? I mean, isn't that, Paul saying, isn't that proof? That's the highest proof you can give is that he loves you even though he doesn't you may not deserve it he's talking about us he's talking about us in this room we're the weak and ungodly ones that Christ died for we're the stubborn sinners rebellious enemies of god and the beams of love come even to us they reach out and they want to pull us back in it's proof it's proof of god's love this is verse 8 but god proves his love while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sacrifice, giving up his life so that we may have life. 
writer named Rick Riley tells the, recounts the true story of a student named Daniel Huffman. He was the co-captain of the football team of his high school, Rossville High in Rossville, Illinois. It was his senior year, and this 6'2", 275-pound lineman was the heart and soul of his team. He, he loved football. He lived for football. He was an honor roll student, member of the school chorus, class vice president. He was on the track team, a shot putter, but football was his true love. When diabetes left his grandmother Shirley legally blind for a while, Daniel stepped in and did all of the dishes. He did all of the laundry. He read her mail to her. He took her on walks. Proof of God's love, right? That's proof of Daniel's love for his grandmother. Not only did he say that he loved her, but he began doing things. This is, isn't that wonderful? Reading her mail? I mean, doing her dishes, doing her laundry. But soon, Shirley lost all of the function of her kidneys and was forced to be on dialysis twice a week. And after Daniel had taken her to dialysis and seen the pain that she was enduring, the, the two of them went to lunch one day at Burger King. And somewhere between Whopper and Onion Rings, Daniel made up his mind. Granny said, I can't take it anymore. I want you to have my kidney. No, 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 she said. You're, you're too young. No. I mean, what if something happens? Gran, I, I don't care what happens to me. I'm doing this. Absolutely not, she said. Besides, when I think about you giving up football, it makes me sick to my stomach. At this, Daniel got good and mad. He yelled, Gran, you always told me, stand up for what you believe in. Well, I'm standing up. You're taking my kidney. This is not something you hear every day at Burger King, right? <laughs> Well, the night before surgery, Daniel was scared. He was scared for both himself and for Shirley. Surely they were both going into surgery. Granny said, I, I got to ask one thing. Is it worth it? Is it worth risking your life for? Oh, honey, she said, I, I have no life without this. When she woke up in intensive care the next morning, she already had her color back. My stars, she said to a nurse, now that I've got this 17-year-old kidney in me, I hope I don't feel like going out and tackling somebody. <laughs> and after Shirley went home from the hospital, now think about this. Think about the gift that she'd been given. Think about the sacrifice that had happened. Would that not change you? Both physically, certainly, but wouldn't it fill you with an overwhelming sense of gratitude? And an overwhelming sense to know that you were loved that way, that someone would give up so much for you? So when she got home, she ran, she decided to run a two-inch by one-inch ad in the Danville paper. And all it did was express her love for a grandson. She says, every morning I wake up, I get on my knees and I thank two people, God and Daniel. He gave up his love for football to save his grandmother. It's love's proof. It's, it's been proven. How do you really know? I mean, how do you really know 
that God loves you? What proof do we have? Our God gave up, sacrificed everything for you, for me. It was the deepest form of love. It, it was something that actually happened. It historically occurred. It's love's proof. And the Spirit of God is on a mission right now to remind you of that and to speak and say whatever's happened, whatever's happening, whatever fears you may have about what may occur, I want you to remember this. You are loved. You're loved in such a wonderful way. The shadow may be overhead. Hard, seasoned suffering may be here, but remember this. Remember this. There's a beauty beyond. There's a catalyst that's come to change and to restore and reunite. This is the proof of God's love, Paul says. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for these words of Paul that have reminded us of the powerful way you love us in word and in deed. We pray that this week we would be good listeners, open and attentive to the beams of love that are coming toward us this, this day and in the days ahead. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, uh, we're going to just pause our worship just for a moment to talk a little church family business. Um, I want to uh, remind you, we have a, we're going to be renovating our sanctuary. Some of you know this. We're renovating our sanctuary here, uh, and it's going to be glorious when it's done. It's going to be amazing, but it's going to take a little bit of time, and during that time, we're not going to be able to worship in this room, and so it's going to be a season of change and different for us. Um, that could be a really good thing. I know it's going to be a good thing if we'll be open to it. Um, but to communicate and tell you about how this is going to look like, what its specifics about this change, um, we spare no expense at this church. So we've hired a couple of professional actors to communicate, you know, what it's going to be. And uh, these guys are really, really good, and, and they know how to tell us about what we need to know. So um, it's going to be up here on the screen. So let's hear what they have to tell us. The Girl in Grace campaign has been going on now for a few months and we're getting very close. It's very exciting. We are going to begin construction in June. But Drew, maybe you should begin by telling us how the campaign is going. Uh, Kirk, the congregation has been amazing in their response. Uh, we have had pledges and gifts received to almost a point of $2.6 million. The congregation, Mountain View, has never done this before. So it's exciting to see people's response and their excitement for what's coming up. Well, the first question that most people have is, how are we going to worship and when are we going to worship in Meredith Hall? Yeah, that's the 64 or the $2.6 million question, isn't it? Uh, so it's coming up June 4th. Coming up in just two weeks will be our first Sunday. We're going to be moving into Meredith Hall uh, the week before that. A lot of things are going to move down the sanctuary. And so we're going to have three services each Sunday on um, in Meredith Hall. 8 o'clock traditional, 9.15 traditional, and 10.45 contemporary starting June 4th. 
So that eight o'clock service is a is a good choice, I hear. It's a great choice, you know, especially starting in the summer. Great time to beat the heat. Be first one to the Sunday brunch or the golf course, whatever it might be. Come early. Get out early. You know, another pressing question is, will there be donuts? <laughs> will there be donuts? Yes. Rainbow. <laughs> I've already talked. We've got at least 12 to 14 dozen each week, and we'll make sure the line works coming out of Meredith Hall. We've got to break that, that snake line coming out of the sanctuary. So it'll work. It'll right. work. Well, another big elephant in the room is, how long are we going to be worshiping in Meredith Hall? You're asking all the hard questions here, Kirk. <laughs> all the hard questions. What we know is projects take time. And so we know we're going to be in Meredith Hall for six to eight months, maybe a little longer as things go along. So um, we're going to see, but it probably means Christmas in Meredith Hall. And But there's something about being together in an uh, intimate, cozy setting. Uh, it's going to be an adventure, but it's also going to help us look forward to what's going to be like in the new sanctuary. Well, I know you were a part of the transition team with Elder Sean Murley, and we've been doing a lot of logistics and planning and how are we going to set up Meredith Hall? How many people do you think we can fit in Meredith Hall? Yeah, Sean and his team have done an amazing job of going through all the logistics. So we know we can easily put 150, and if we need to, we can expand to 180 to 190. So what that means is we're going to need to spread people out between the three services, but they're going to be cozy chairs. I mean, they're nice padded. People are going to miss their pews, but these chairs, they're nice. Yes. They're nice. And so if you haven't been to Meredith Hall, You've been missing out. Right. Well, and what about the music? What kind of music could we expect in Meredith Hall? You know, it's going to be a different location, but I think worship is going to feel very similar. The organ will be there, so we'll have the full organ. You know, the choir normally takes the summer off, and so uh, come the fall, we'll have the choir different ways, but traditional will feel very traditional, contemporary will be very contemporary. I think that people will say, this feels like home. Mm, great. And how will we handle sacraments in Meredith Hall? Well, again, different location, same ministry. And so uh, the deacons and elders will be serving us uh, at traditional, it'll be the regular passing the plates. At contemporary, it'll be the regular intinction. So really what we've experienced in the sanctuary is what we'll experience in Meredith Hall, just a different setting. Well, you mentioned summer people do take off and uh, vacation and go to northern climes. Uh, we will also be streaming. What is our plans for streaming the services? Well, you know, the summer, you're right, because a lot of people are traveling, and so we want people to stay connected, and so we'll be streaming the 915 service, kind of like we currently do the 9 o'clock service. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, another option for people, summer's a great time to visit and explore. We have two church plants. We have the Midtown Church Plant, and we have the South Scottsdale Church Plant. And so maybe you want to take a Sunday and go down and, and see what God's doing in those places too. So uh, lots of options. Now, Drew, you mentioned that it was going to take a little time. You, I think eight to ten months. Is, yeah. So that, if I do the math right, that tells me we're going to be worshiping in Meredith Hall on Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Kirk, you're finally going to get what you wanted. Christmas Eve services all through the day. And, and this year, Christmas Eve is on a Sunday, so that makes it even more interesting. But... You know, by that point, we'll have lived in, it's gonna feel like home. I think it's gonna be great. All right. And how could people help us out in this uh, campaign further? We've had a lot of great pledges. We're very grateful for everyone's giving, but what else can people do? Well, a message from the finance team. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of things. One, if you've made a pledge, thank you so much. And just know that 
If you're maybe able to pay that pledge ahead of time, the, the more money we have in, the less money we have to borrow. So one, they could pay their pledge early, but if you're in a three-year pledge, thank you. Just keep that up. The other thing, maybe you haven't yet pledged. Um, we are still accepting pledges, and so anything comes in, again, the response has been tremendous, um, but the, the more we have in, the more resources we have, the better off we'll be. I guess another message for our congregation is flexibility. Flexibility. And, you know, your regular pew is not going to be there, but maybe you're going to meet someone new, mm -hmm. which would be pretty exciting. And, again, a lot of visitors come in the summer, so just be open uh, to what God wants to do in the midst of us. Well, we've answered a lot of questions, but you may have some additional questions. So we invite you to find Sean Murley or Pastor Drew or myself, and hopefully we can answer any other additional questions you have. Yeah, you know, one thing, Kirk, that people are saying, what are they going to see? And chances are when they get here on June 4th for that first Sunday, they're not going to see anything. But during that week is when chain link fences are going to go up and trailers are going to come in. And so after that, they're going to start seeing activity. But it's almost going to be like HGTV, like we're not going to get to see the room until it's done. We'll have the big reveal. So it'll be pretty exciting come whenever that day is. Well, thanks, Drew. Appreciate you taking time to answer all these questions that we have. Thanks, Kurt. Appreciate it. You know, I love all the rooms in Christ Church. I mean, I, you know, the Methodist room is wonderful. The Baptist room, the Episcopal room, they're all wonderful rooms. But this is my room, and I love the Presbyterian room, right? And one of the reasons why I love it is because we're the people in the in Christ family that love change the most, right? Do we not? I mean, we, we're known as the people who love risk and flexibility and change. Not so much. Maybe not. <laughs> But Mountain View is different, right? We're gonna, so this is going to be a big change for us and a big challenge. But as Drew and Kirk said, I think also we're going to discover some new things. And I think it'll be wonderful. So I, I hope that you um, hang with us and give us a try over Meredith Hall. It's, it's a neat space for worship. And I, um, and I know God would want us to be there and giving him praise. All right, let's conclude our worship this morning. Let's stand and we'll sing our closing hymn.
And friends, may you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and our